Dear Father, bless us, Father, with your word as you blessed us in worship through the song that we sang, the songs that came earlier, Father. Bless us, Father, in our understanding of these things. Bless us with courage and a willingness to obey in what we learn. For, Father, we know that there are things you will teach tonight and in future weeks that won't please us, they won't let us feel self-satisfied. They're not going to let us feel comfortable. They're going to remind us of who you are and who we are and how big a gap there is between the two. But that's what we want, Father. We don't want it in the moment. All, all discipline would seem not to be joyful in the moment, but, Father, we know that in time it produces a, a fruit of righteousness and a peacefulness in our hearts, and we want that. So take us through what we need to know tonight. Show us where we have to change to agree and obey what we learn, and then, Father, give us the courage and the determination to stick with it, for we want to be like you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Matthew 13. You guys ready to get trained? Because that's what we're about to do. We're about to enter kingdom program training, as I called it last week. Remember, this is a training program which Jesus now is setting about to teach all his disciples on what's coming after he's gone, on the nature and on the course and the purpose of the kingdom program, which now must go into effect after Jesus' offer of the kingdom was rejected by Israel. So the men that he's teaching, the disciples, certainly the twelve as you know them, and as well other disciples who have accompanied him, these men all have to carry this program forward as after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. They have to establish the New Testament church. They're going to author the New Testament canon, the, uh, the apostles will. And they have to lead that body as it grows in its early years. And so naturally, if you're going to have that role, you've got to understand this program. What is it Jesus wants? What's the, the program of the kingdom on earth? And it's very different than the literal physical kingdom would have been had it been set up in Jesus' day. The work of the kingdom program is something that is fundamentally new and different from anything God had asked of his people prior to that moment. So as you get into this period of training that Jesus now embarks on, starting in this chapter, a program I'm calling Kingdom Program 101, you're going to see how hard it is at times for the Lord to explain this to these men. He's trying to explain to them they've got to go out and build a spiritual community from out of the world. And that community is going to be established and grown by God. Not by men and women, but by God. But yet, he uses men and women, his disciples, in order to accomplish that work. And even as you go out doing it, that work's going to be opposed by an enemy who is determined not to see it happen. And that means that you and I, disciples, have to be prepared to suffer as we go out and do the job of the kingdom program. Do you see already how different this is? Suffering versus the joy of the kingdom. Working to establish people in the faith versus living in a kingdom where everyone knows Jesus. I mean, it's literally an opposite kind of task to the one that these men anticipated they were going to see in their lifetime. Now, you and I accept all of these truths quite plainly. In fact, we call it things. We call the kingdom program Christianity. Being a Christian, if you will. Some would just call it church. But for these men, these men don't have a clue what's coming. Now, if it weren't bad enough, Jesus makes it a degree harder for these guys because as he goes about teaching them Kingdom Program 101, he does it in a way that conceals the truth from the, the rest of the crowd, from all of the unbelieving in the crowds that follow him. And he does this through parables. He uses a, a construct called a parable in which he can conceal the truth of these matters in a way that only the disciples will understand them. But of course, as he does that, he leaves many of the disciples in the dark too. 
they're often confused until he, he explains it. All right, so that's what's ahead of us. And in chapter 13, you have an opening series of parables that kind of just come out of the gate roaring here. All right, he's just going to start dumping on them and on us. Each of these parables in chapter 13 describes some aspect of the kingdom program. Now, you and I know the program pretty well, but what you're going to find is there's aspects of it that you have perhaps missed. And these parables will give us those things. And this first one is one of my favorites. In fact, this first one is probably one of his best known. I think maybe the only parable people know better than the first one in this chapter is the prodigal son parable, which Matthew doesn't have. So in this parable, you're going to see something revolutionary in your walk with Christ, I assure you. Let's listen to what Jesus says. And Matthew opens in verse 1, giving us the setting. I'm going to go back to where I was last week. I read a couple of verses last week, but let's just start there again. Verse 1. He says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Well, that's the scene. I want you to imagine that in your mind's eye. you got Jesus. He's on the shore, it says, at first, right? Then the crowds show up, as they have been doing now for quite some time. And there's so many of them that he gets in a boat, pushes off from the shore, sits in the boat, and leaves everybody stranded on the shore while he teaches them. Now, why did he do that? He's putting a barrier between himself and the crowd intentionally so that they cannot reach him physically. Now, those are the crowds, remember, that were attracted to him and have been attracted to him all along, principally for one reason. They came for the healing. They came because they knew he had the power to heal them. And they, honestly speaking, they honestly had very little interest in the teaching. The vast majority of them were not there for the teaching. So what Jesus just did is he went out on a boat, forcing the people to stay on the shore, and in that way he ensures they have no choice but to listen to his teaching. Because they are all there to be healed, they're waiting for him to come back. And in the meantime, they're a captive audience. He literally holds them at bay. Well, that's that's where the term comes from. He holds them at bay. Keeps the boat from coming to shore. What he is showing them is, there is a more important ministry that I have for you than the one you came for. You came for physical healing, I'm going to give you spiritual healing, because that matters a lot more. This is a beautiful picture of how Christ prioritizes spiritual needs over physical needs while we are here on earth. Because as much as he loves us, and as much as he desires to help us in many ways, including physical healing from time to time, he is a lot more concerned about your soul infinitely more concerned about your soul. And the solution for what ails us spiritually is listening to the Word of God. That's why this church exists. Which is why sometimes in your pursuit of Christ, and I'm talking now about the way we pursue Him, sometimes Jesus is not going to give you the material or physical things that you desire from Him as you appeal to Him in your prayer, for example. At least not for a while. And He's doing it much in the same way that He's doing it here. He, is it where He gets on a boat away from you, out of your reach for a while, and in doing so, He holds your attention. He holds your interest. He keeps you coming back in prayer. He keeps you coming back in the Word. Now, what we do in those moments is we say to ourselves, why won't He listen to us? Why won't He do as I ask? Why won't He give me what I want? And what He's saying is, keep coming and you'll learn. Keep coming and you'll learn. Because in the meantime, He's talking to you spiritually about things that matter more than whatever that is that you're asking. That's what He's doing here for the crowd. And knowing that they want something that they shouldn't want, and they need something they aren't asking for, He goes on now teaching from that vantage point on the boat. And here's what he says in his first parable. And this is our focus, obviously, for tonight. Verse 3. It says, He spoke many things to them in parables, saying, 
Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, there you go. There's your first parable, one I'm almost certain all of you have heard, or most of you certainly. And it's the first parable in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's take a moment as we study parables just to understand how these things work. And it's not that hard to understand. You have a parable using ordinary circumstances from everyday life that represent more complex spiritual truths. So being familiar with the ordinary situation would allow you then to kind of work out the meaning of the spiritual deeper story that's embedded in it. And in that way, a parable is a way of packing a lot of spiritual meaning into a very simple storyline. But for that same reason, it has kind of a paradoxical quality to it. Because on the one hand, it obscures truth. It's like a puzzle. It's not immediately evident what it's talking about because of the structure. And that's something Jesus intended in this case. He's hiding the truth from those in the crowd for whom it's not intended. But on the other hand, it has the power of simplifying very complicated ideas once you understand it. And like it... Any puzzle you have to solve, I always use the analogy of solving a, a jigsaw puzzle when it comes to parables. Because in a jigsaw puzzle, you know, there's always that one piece. Toward the end of a puzzle, you're looking at the hole, and you're looking at the piece, and you think, that might be it. And you put it there, and then it just doesn't slip in. It kind of acts like it doesn't want to go. And at that moment, you have a choice. You can say to yourself, well, that's not the right piece, obviously. Or you could say, you know what? It's the right piece. And yet it's not satisfying because you know it's not really the right piece, right? And in the same sense, if all the pieces of the parable don't fit together in your interpretation, you're off somewhere. Something's wrong. Go back. Do your homework again. And that's what we want. We want everything to fit neatly, and that's our goal tonight. So let's look at this first parable, and I want to start breaking it down for you. And this is a way in which you should see parables kind of watching the methodology here. We start with some observation of it. And right up front, you should notice something about the structure. It's constructed in four parts or four conditions. That's easy to see, right? And across those four conditions that are in this parable, you're going to find that there are details that are varying across the four. And then there are some details that remain the same across the four. Well, let's start with considering what stays the same. What stays the same? Well, first, each condition has a farmer or a sower who's planting, right? You don't have four different farmers planting in four different fields. You got one guy who's planting all the places that we hear about as he moves along. He's just sowing everywhere, <laughs> which means, by the way, this is a lousy sower as sowers go. This is, a, this is virtually an incompetent Farmer, because he is sowing indiscriminately, randomly. He, he seems to have no care whatsoever, no precision. He's just throwing the stuff everywhere. It doesn't matter where it lands. It's almost as if he has an unlimited supply of free seed, because he doesn't seem to care how it gets used, does he? Anyone who farmed in that day would have understood as he heard this parable, this is kind of silly. Moreover, the farmer does no work to ensure the success of his planting. You notice he's not preparing the ground, he's not watering the seed, he's not pruning, he's not removing weeds. He leaves everything, it seems, to just chance outcome. And then he keeps walking. And so based on those early observations of the sower, it becomes readily apparent to anyone who reads this, this parable that he is not the focus of this parable. 
I mean, the last thing you would want to do is walk away from this parable saying to yourself, this is a methodology on how to be a sower. It's, it's the opposite, right? This has nothing to do with him. The parable is about sowing, so you have to have a sower, but he's incidental to the story. He's, he's background noise. Where's the focus? Well, the focus is clearly elsewhere, and the farmer's lack of skill is sort of evident, the, uh, evidence to us that we don't pay attention to him. And that brings you to the other detail that's, that's the same across all four conditions, and that is, of course, the seed. The seed is the same. It's the same for every condition. Every kernel has exactly the same potential. It could all grow if it wanted to. It's all able to produce fruit. The seed is the same. The sower is the same. So what's different about the four? Well, there are two major details that vary across these four conditions. The first is the type of soil, and the second is the outcome of the planting. In fact, some have called this parable the parable of the four soils, not the sower and the seed, because obviously the the soil is the prominent detail in the parable. And each of these different soils produces a different result, and it's that interplay between the soil type and the outcome that gets our attention and makes the heart of the parable. It's what drives the narrative. So that's where we need to focus. Let's take our time and look at each soil and its outcome. In the first, you see the seed falling on hard-packed road. Now, A seed that falls on that kind of road has no chance at all. And anyone who's ever done any kind of hiking, I used to go backpacking with my dad, and we would walk through the wilderness near where I grew up, near New Mexico at the time. And, you know, it's hard ground, and if anyone walks on it at all, it becomes like cement. I mean, you can barely dig in it, much less put anything in it just by chance. And so that seed just sits there on the ground. It's exposed to the world. A bird sees it as the story goes, picks it up, takes it away. End of the story. And notably, there's no life here. Nothing's living at the end of this condition. As we leave this condition, there's nothing living. Moving to the second condition, you have seed falling on rocky places, and it begins to grow quickly, but ultimately it withers and dies. Now, rocky ground is a type of soil in this context that was common to the mountain regions of Palestine, to the places of Jesus in the day. And it's the same type of ground you have here, so it's really easy for us in South Texas to understand this. We're not talking, if your mind goes to like boulders on the ground or rocks on the ground, no, that's not what it means. That's not what the terminology meant. It's a reference to the type of soil that was common in Palestine, which is a thin layer of topsoil on a bedrock of limestone. And that topsoil being relatively thin means that it stays loose. It's very hard to compact topsoil when it sits on a a layer of rock and make it stay compacted. It, It just doesn't tend to hold. It needs depth to be compacted. And so what that allows for here, as you notice, is Jesus says in verse 5 that the seed springs up immediately. Well, because it's able to go into the dirt easily because it is loose. And similarly, um, you have water and moisture penetrating the ground very easily because it's all so thin. So that germinates the seed. Notice verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 5. He says it springs up immediately but um, doesn't have much trouble getting started. But then in verse 6, now you have the downside to thin topsoil, that root can't go very deep. As it starts to grow, it hits that that rock and it's done. It can't go any further. And now you only have this much soil or so to hold on to all that moisture. And Jesus says in verse 6 that as soon as the sun rises, we're talking about the first day, the plant can't survive the heat of the day because that root didn't go deep, because the moisture evaporates, and now life is extinguished again. So here again, we leave the second condition with no life. Third condition, Seed falls on soil that now is very capable of sustaining life. In fact, it's so accommodating, it's already supporting a host of other things. Harmful things, weeds. 
Jesus says in verse 7 that the third soil has weeds and thorns and that as a result of these things, as it grows up and they grow up around it, it chokes off the plant. Now, keep in mind, choking off doesn't mean to die. Choking off in the context of plants means not to produce fruit, to choke off its ability to reproduce. So the third soil now, and this is the first change we've noticed in the pattern, the third soil is the first condition of the four in which we leave the condition with life. Here we have a plant living, albeit a plant that is struggling in the midst of competition. It may be alive, but its energy is directed entirely to its own survival, which means it has no energy left over to reproduce itself, to produce fruit. And then finally, we have the fourth condition. Now clearly, this is the ideal outcome. The fourth soil, Jesus says, is good. That means it's not only deep, it's also loose enough that the seed can enter. It's free of contaminants, so it won't be affected in its growth. It takes root, it grows, it reproduces. In fact, it creates a crop as much as a hundredfold itself. And the parable ends. Now, before we go any deeper than this, you can already see the simplicity of the story. I didn't have to explain probably even as much as I did what the story said on its face. That's the idea of a parable, easy to understand. And yet, it's got a deeper spiritual meaning. And I would challenge you at this point, if you'd never heard the parable before or heard the teaching before, if I asked you right now to explain its spiritual meaning, I suspect it would be challenging, to say the least, right? So the question then becomes, how did Jesus expect his disciples to understand this thing? They're hearing it for the first time. What are they to think of it? Well, notice what he says in verse 9. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, we first encountered Jesus using that phrase back in chapter 11. And at that time, I told you, this is going to become a common phrase. He had never used it before, but now it's going to become common. And the reason is because now as he has moved into this new phase of ministry, his offer of the kingdom has been rejected. Israel's no longer going to have opportunity in that generation to receive it. They've committed the unpardonable sin, which is to say they've rejected Christ and he will no longer offer them the kingdom again, not in that lifetime, not in that generation. Therefore, what time he has remaining now is directed at preparing his disciples only. And one of the consequences of the unpardonable sin is that he would not explain truth to the crowds any longer, but through parables. Not everyone will be able to understand. And the Lord determines... Who is able to understand spiritual truth by His Spirit? The Spirit of God is the member of the Godhead who has the authority to determine who would understand spiritual truth. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.11. He says, For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Let me just explain to you what Paul said. Paul said that just like you are the only one who knows your own thoughts, that is to say your spirit is the only one who knows your own thoughts. No one else knows what's in your mind. I can't read your mind. Similarly, the Spirit of God is the only one who truly knows God's thoughts. That's what Paul starts with. And then he says, that Spirit has been given to each of us by our faith in Christ so that we would have knowledge of what God wants us to know. And he says, when someone 
speak spiritual truth to someone, they didn't find, figure that out on their own. It's not like human wisdom brought them to that understanding. Hey, if I say anything up here that's worthwhile, it's not because I was involved, it's because God was involved. If anything, I got in the way. So spiritual truth comes from God, and when someone speaks it to you and you hear it, that communication process, that transfer process, in human terms, is immaterial. It was God speaking through someone, by their words, to someone else, so that truth could get transferred. But it all is through the Spirit. Another way to say it is this. By the Spirit, I might know something. By the Spirit, I might say something. By the Spirit, you might understand what I said. But without the Spirit in that loop, it's, it's meaningless. Paul says that the natural man, that is the one who is not saved... He says that person cannot accept spiritual truth because to accept it requires the Spirit of God. And if they're unsaved, they don't have Him. Which is why Scripture is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? So, in other words, the Spirit of God is our giant decoder ring for understanding what the Bible says, both in plain language or in the case of parables. And Jesus, understanding this principle, has chosen to speak in parables, knowing that the knowledge of what he's saying will just jump right over the heads of the unbelievers in the room. They'll never get it. They don't have the Spirit to get it. But by the Spirit living in believers, there is that potential for the Spirit to explain it to them. Now, here's the thing. That does not mean that automatically you become Einstein when it comes to spiritual truth. You see what I'm saying? Just because you have the Spirit of God, that gives you the potential to understand the things of God. It does not imbibe you with all of the knowledge of God instantly. Right? That's not yet available to us. And so the process of letting the Spirit speak to us fundamentally is a process of getting out of the way so that the Spirit of God, as He speaks to us the truth of Scripture, is, is then implanted in us. I like to compare it to, to uh, sort of noise versus signal. You know, if you have a, a machine making too much noise in your house, you can't hear the TV. You can do one of two things. You can turn up the TV, or you can turn down the noise. Best to do both. And that's what it is when you discipline the flesh, moving yourself out of the way, quieting the false voices in your world, quieting that inner fleshly voice that wants to compete with the Spirit of God. That's turning down the noise, and there's disciplines of our walk with Christ that give us the power to do that. Prayer, fasting, Bible study, disciplining ourselves in a variety of other ways, those are things of turning down the noise. And then, as I devote myself to the understanding of Scripture, I turn up my appreciation for what the Spirit is saying. I increase the volume of His voice, and in time I begin to understand things. It's a process. It takes time. It takes years. But it comes. It's a process that the unbeliever has no chance to even begin. So, Jesus is obscuring this truth from the crowds, and He's expecting the Spirit of God to explain it in time to His disciples. Now, you might be asking a question at this point which I would assume would be in your mind, which would be something along the lines of, well, wait a minute, why doesn't he just want to keep teaching the truth to everybody in the hope that some of those people who don't believe would eventually believe? Well, he answers that in verse 10. Because the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them? Notice this. They're concerned for the same thing. Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. 
For the heart of the people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Now, you remember last week I introduced this chapter by explaining that in the wake of Israel's rejection of Christ, he shifts his approach to ministry in some dramatic ways. And we went through about five ways in which things change. One of those changes was refusing to teach openly and instead to use these parables, as I said. Look down the page just for a second. Look at verse 34 just for a moment. I want to show you how complete this switch was. In verse 34, Matthew reports, at the end of that verse, he says, Jesus never taught the crowd without using a parable from that point forward. This isn't just a sometimes thing. This is the only thing that he gives them from now on. And that switch was so dramatic, it's so out of the blue, that it even caught the disciples off guard. That's why they asked that question in verse 10. Why have you started talking in code, Jesus? And he responds, he says, because it's not been granted them to know these things. Only you. What he's saying is this. God is selectively revealing the truth of the kingdom to those who have the faith in Christ such that the kingdom is of any relevance to them at this point. And simultaneously, he's withholding the truth of the kingdom from that generation for its sin of having committed the unpardonable sin, of having rejected him. Now, understand, we're not saying this is a general rule of Christ. I mean, today, for example, there's no one walking the earth today who's committed the unpardonable sin. It's not possible, as we described last time we taught, that it was a unique moment, only possible in the time Jesus walked the earth, only in Israel. And so there's no possibility today of this problem existing. So everyone is hearing the message. The word has gone out to the four corners of the earth. It continues to go out, right? As God has intended. But in this day, there's a moment here that's unique. And this moment is one in which Jesus has already declared that that generation of Israel was under judgment, apart from a remnant, apart from those God, by His sovereign grace, was moving into the plan of the kingdom. And so that generation, he says, even what they have is going to be taken away from them. That is, they have the law, they have the prophets, they have the temple, they had their place in the land, and those things were about to change. By A.D. 70, that generation no longer had the land. They no longer had the temple. They no longer were able to enjoy uh, celebrating in the Torah or in any of the services that they normally did. They were being put outside the land over a period of years. That was being taken away from them. Meanwhile, you have the disciples who by their faith in Christ are now part of God's plan for the kingdom. And what they started with, they will see magnified. They will receive more scripture. The New Testament canon will come to them. They will see a new entity stand up, the church and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in them at Pentecost. These things will be added to them such that they will have an abundance of blessing and an abundance of revelation for having believed in Jesus. And he says, quoting Isaiah 6, he says, this is just what God said would happen. This is exactly what he told the nation of Israel would come. Do you realize that Isaiah 6 is actually predicting parables? It's, Jesus applies it that way here. He says that this is what Isaiah told Israel would happen. When your Messiah comes to you, Israel, he's going to speak to you in code, in parables, such that you'll hear it and you'll see him, but you won't understand it. And why? Because your hearts are dull, he says, because Israel is a nation had gone to the point where they weren't looking for what God was offering, which is what we've studied up to this point. But then notice that little part at the end. He says, had they understood 
they would have returned. And had they returned to the Lord, He in His mercy and in His grace would have healed them. And because they have committed the unpardonable sin and they cannot see that outcome, He will not allow them to understand so that they will not return, so that they will not be healed. Now, when you read that, we all have the same reaction. That doesn't seem like the God I know out of the New Testament. Why does He not want to bring them to the repentance that we know would save them, especially if He's inclined to heal them? Do you know what the answer to that question is? Do you know why he has set forth a plan in which his son would be rejected and they would then be judged rightly for that rejection, but the judgment would include the inability to receive him any longer once that had happened? Why did he come up with that plan? Do you know he did that for you? Do you understand you are the reason? And me? And every Gentile that has ever come to know Christ in the last 2,000 years? Because here's what would have happened, friends. Had they received their Messiah, then he would have been obligated by his own word to heal them, as he said, and set up the kingdom for them, as he promised. And had the kingdom begun, I mean, he still would have gone to the cross, because he still has to pay for the sins of the world. He would have died and been gone three days, he would have been resurrected, but in his resurrection he would have walked in, sat on the seat of David, and inaugurated the kingdom. Had that happened, where would you be? Where would I be? First of all, we wouldn't be believers because there wouldn't have been the time of the church reaching out to the world with the gospel. But you know what? You might not have even been born. Because who could say what the plan of earth would have been like after that? No, because he had a plan to include you and me and all the other Gentiles of the church in the kingdom. He let his people reject him and he held them to that decision. And he did so in such a way that they would not come back. Now he's fully and perfectly just in everything I just said. They reject him. He affirms it. But in the affirming of it, he also removes the opportunity for mercy, at least for a time in that generation, so that the plan for you and I would happen. And I know you may think, well, that still seems unfair. It still seems like he shouldn't pit one of us against another. Let me suggest to you that you come up with a better plan. (laughs) And, And let me know when you find it. But Paul, at the end of Romans, says... Who has known the mind of God? Who who can imagine a, a wiser, more glorious plan? Go read how Paul ends Romans 11, where he discusses this very issue. And look how he finishes his thought on this. He says, what a marvelous, wonderful wisdom of God that is evident in this plan. All right, now it's time for the Holy Spirit, speaking of him, to explain this parable to us. Verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself. But this is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, and indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Well, there's your answer. However, you notice how even when he interprets... There's still a lack of an appreciation. We still don't quite get it. We're trying to make sense of it even still. And that's where the Spirit of God steps in. Let's let's use Him. Let's decode this parable in verse 19. And He he starts by saying, 
Here's the key, verse 19. The key is, the seed in this parable represents the word of the kingdom, while the soil represents the heart of the human being. Luke's version of this parable actually gives us a little clearer explanation on that first point. In Luke 8, 11, Jesus starts the explanation by saying, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. So the seed in this parable represents this, the spreading, the planting, if you will, of the word of God, or as Matthew calls it, the word of the kingdom. And that seed is planted, so to speak, where? Well, the soil we just heard represents the human heart. So it's a picture. The, the, the human heart is actually picture uh, in Scripture, a picture of the spirit of us, right? We know the heart itself is just a physical vessel pumping blood. But when the Bible talks about believe in your heart, it's a euphemistic way of saying believe in your spirit, in that part of you that is eternal. So you have a seed, the Word of God, being planted, being stored, as it were, in the spirit, in the heart of a person. And if that's the case then, now I know that all four of these conditions must explain how different kinds of people are responding to the kingdom program message. Or we could just say the gospel. It's one and the same. The gospel. And based on this parable, you know what you find right up front before we even look at the details? There are four and only four possible responses to the gospel. Every person who's ever heard the gospel and done anything with it falls into one of these four categories. That's what we're learning. All human responses. So keep that in mind as we try to decode it. Verse 19, the first condition, Jesus says, represents a person who has heard the word but doesn't understand it. And then he says the evil one, who's obviously Satan, the devil, or any of his demons, removes it from them. Now here again, Luke makes this explanation just a, a little clearer. He says this, Luke eight twelve. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. So the problem here is the heart. The problem in the first condition is you've got a guy or a, or a gal whose heart is so hard. And I think the picture of, of worn path is perfect, right? Hard-hearted, packed down, not penetratable. That's the heart of this person. And so the word, as it comes to this person, it just sits there. It goes nowhere. It has no chance to get into their heart. And the enemy sees it sitting there and says to himself, well, you know what, if I leave this here long enough, uh, the person might eventually decide to wake up to it, and I don't want that to happen, so I'm going to remove this before they respond to it, before there's any hope or chance that they might respond to it. Now, what does that mean in physical terms, in real life terms? Well, we can imagine a million scenarios, but... You know, something of the sort of an unbeliever, a committed atheist, who says, I don't believe, someone brings them the word, gives them a track, tells them about Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I've had this experience more than a few times. And every time it happens, I remember this parable. You're talking to someone who's pretty hard-hearted about the gospel, but you're trying. And you tell them something about Jesus, and you think you might be getting somewhere, and suddenly their phone rings. Suddenly someone interrupts your conversation. Suddenly they have a coughing fit and they have to go to the bathroom. And every time something that, you're like, the bird, he picked up the seed, he took it away. You know, you don't know why and you're not in control of that outcome, but you can kind of see it in spiritual eyes and realize it's not a coincidence they got a call right then and there. I was, we were having a conversation, and I won't get off on this because we're out of time, but I was sitting in a conversation in Norway one time while I was there teaching, and I was at a table in a restaurant, and I was trying to, people asking me Bible questions, we're trying to get into the, the depths of something that was important, and every time we tried, like a waitress, someone else, one time a guy sat down who wasn't even part of our group and just sat there next to me. I mean, it's like, excuse me? 
Later we realized this guy was demon-possessed, and I could tell you a story on that. But he just sat there and interrupted us. Every time we tried to talk, he would interrupt. Every time we tried to interrupt. You know, you've got to live with eyes for eternity. You've got to understand there's a real spiritual war out there, and at sometimes what you're seeing when you try to reach somebody, and there's these, this friction going on, what you're seeing is the enemy battling you over the possibility that that seed might do something, and they don't really want to lose that person that they've worked so hard to hold on to. All right, that's one. Second condition, the seed enters the soil easily. And so, as he says, the person receives the word with joy, or so it seems. But as he says in verse 21, there's no root. And look, friends, without a root, there's no life. So faith in the word, in this case, is a merely external and temporary response to something that tickled the ears. And that so-called moment of faith is tested later by a trial or by a persecution. And as soon as that testing comes, they realize that Christianity ain't the fun game they thought it was, and they're done. Or as soon as it gets a little inconvenient, or just boring. And in that case, he says, just like the plant that appeared to take hold in the soil, in this case you might think at first this person has found what they are looking for, what you hope they have found, but in time, the plant dies, and so does their faith. It was never there. They never had a real chance. Then third condition, you have the Word of God taking root in the soil of the heart, and it begins to grow as it should, but then it says the deceitfulness of the world and the attraction of riches and the like, it all becomes too much of a temptation, too much of a distraction. It's a drain on them, and rather than investing their energy in spiritual growth, they have to work so hard just to fight off all of the world. They're barely surviving. Anybody feel like this some days? But as a result of that, they're unfruitful, spiritually speaking. Remember, again, in this condition, the seed has taken root. It lives on. As the condition ends, you still have a plant. It's just a plant that isn't bearing spiritual fruit. And then finally, the fourth condition. This is the easy one, right? You have a person who hears the word, understands it, and bears fruit. Now, the Greek word for understand here means insight. In other words, it's not merely knowing the word exists or hearing it for a casual experience. It means a real investment in it, an appreciation of the deeper implications of it. And as a result, that person begins to conform their life to it. It's not just thoughts, it's, it's who they become. And in that sense, they understand it. And as a result, they produce spiritual fruit. What is the fruit of a plant? In the case of one that is planted by a seed, the fruit of the plant is what? more seed. The idea is that what they are, they reproduce. It can, you can do it a million ways, but the outcome is more disciples, more believers, more of the church, more of the kingdom program. Now, we know where Jesus is trying to take us here, right? It's clear enough that he wants us to understand the way the kingdom program will be uh, encountered by various people in the world and what their responses to that will be. But it still leaves you wondering, sort of, so what, right? I mean, it's interesting, what are we to do with this? If you get too absorbed in the exercise that I know many of us have probably engaged in, which is, tell me if I'm wrong, right? Which one's the believer? Which one's the unbeliever? Which one's go to heaven? Well, I think it's number four. No, I think it's number two and four. No, wait a minute. If you get absorbed in that, friends, you will miss the big picture. And if you miss the big picture, you will miss the point. Let me give you the point. It turns out, and I'll put up a, a slide or two here for you. Let's put up the first one. It turns out that the four conditions of this parable are structured similar to something called a Latin square. Anybody here who has a math background knows where I'm going, but the rest of you are deadly afraid of what's about to happen. <laughs> a Latin square is a mathematical array where two or more conditions are crossed with two or more other conditions to create a set of unique 
variables or unique conditions. Okay? So let's, let's fill this out, and I'll show you what you're seeing when you look at the parable of the sower and the seed. If you remember, we said there were two factors that vary across the four conditions, right? That's what a Latin square looks like. So the first variable is the inward reality of the plant. The second variable is the outward appearance or the fruit. Those are the things that varied. Okay, The inward reality was varying. The outward appearance was varying. And then within each of those, you have two conditions as well. The inward reality is, on the one hand, some who were spiritually alive and others who were spiritually dead. And for outward appearance, you have some that look dead and some that look alive. Do you see where we're going in the parable? Now, what happens if you cross those four conditions in this matrix? Well, when you cross these four conditions, you arrive at the full spectrum of possible outcomes for someone who encounters the gospel. In the first condition, you have a spiritually dead person, an unbeliever, who looks like a spiritually dead person. They are the atheist and proud of it. No confusing them. They no more call themselves a Christian than a, than a Buddhist or a, or a Muslim would. All right? They have a hard heart. They have no interest in God. They have no interest in religion, probably. And they aren't interested in changing. No confusing this person. Let's jump to condition number four. Here you find the opposite. Here you have a person who's clearly born again by their faith in the Word, and they're alive in the Spirit, and they're producing fruit. They're mature. They are a believer, and they look like a believer to anyone who would encounter them. Right? Condition four. And you see how we're crossing these things, right? Now you get to the interesting ones, right? Let's go to condition two. Here you have a person responding to the message as if it has taken root. They respond in joy to the message. What that means for us is maybe they go to church for a while. Maybe they attend a Bible study for a while. Maybe they even get water baptized. You know, we don't give you a test before you get in there. We just ask you to confess Christ. And if you're willing to do it, come on in. That doesn't mean that they can't be lying. I mean, you know, we don't know. That's between them and God. I'm not responsible for that. The point is, they have an appearance at first, but in time, because of persecution or trial, they change their mind, they fall away, and ultimately they return to who they were always in the first place, which is unsaved, spiritually dead. They looked a little bit like a believer, but they were always spiritually dead. And finally, we have condition three. The person who hears the word becomes spiritually alive and yet produces no fruit. And Jesus told this parable largely for that person. The person I call the condition three Christian. We're at the end of the time and I'm almost at the end, but this is the point. So bear with me for shame on me if I don't give you the point. You can clearly see that this condition, number three, is his main purpose in telling this parable. When you look at what he says in Luke's gospel, after he finishes the parable. Look what his own application of the parable is in Luke 8, 8, 16. He says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a container or puts it under a bed. He puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Nothing is hidden which will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. So after Jesus told the parable, he makes his own application. And do you know which of the four conditions he chose to emphasize with his application? Does he tell you, go out and work harder to get to that number one condition? Or go out and find those number fours and emulate them? Or let's go find those number twos and kick them out of the church because they're fooling everybody. 
No, that's ridiculous. What does he spend his time on? He says, to the one who has had a light lit in them by the Spirit of God, stop covering it up. If you go to the effort to light a lamp, you did it with the expectation of receiving service from it. And likewise, when the Lord illuminates the truth of the gospel in your heart, He expected us to shine that light as a witness to the world. And when you allow the cares and the riches and the pleasures and the worries of this life to distract you, such that you have to devote all your energy to surviving in this run-down world that's dying anyway, rather than actually spending that effort on witnessing, being the witness that God has called you to be, when you do that, he says, you have slipped into condition three. You have become the person that worries Christ the most. At this point, friends, we have to understand that if you're weighed down by trial and temptation, if you're struggling to apply the basic disciplines of your walk with Christ, I mean, even if things like coming to church regularly or Bible study or prayer, if those kind of things are a struggle for you, welcome to condition three, at least maybe to some extent. And you'll know you're there if this is true. Do you make spiritual commitments to yourself or to others, but you consistently break those promises? The people I see as a pastor that do this are always easy to see. These are the people who say, Pastor, uh, the Lord's been telling me I need to get back to church and get back to Bible study. And I'm like, great. It's been a while, buddy. Glad to have you back. I'm in. I'm really in this time. Three weeks later, have no idea where the guy is. And that's it. And maybe three months or six months later, I hear that same story again when he finally decides he's going to try a second time. That's a condition three loop. If that's you, friends, I hope that what you're hearing tonight gives you something to think about and that in spiritual wisdom that you will begin to understand that Christ has saved you for that opportunity to serve Him, not strictly speaking so that heaven would be a little nicer with you. right? He wants us all there, but the point is to serve, to fulfill that purpose as a disciple. And the key is to understand that in this physical time we live, we're building a spiritual kingdom for something greater yet to come. I appreciate your patience because I've gone over time, and I know that's not easy, and I apologize. I didn't want to take this parable halfway. I wanted you to hear the end of it. Take it with you. Do something with it this week and in the weeks to come. Talk to Jesus about how you can serve Him better and let Him show you. Let's pray. We'll end with prayer tonight. Heavenly Father, I thank You, Lord, for the time that people gave us to listen. I pray, Father, that what they heard would change their hearts in a way that You intend. I pray, Father, that as You move them and move all of us, that we would be better servants. Thank You for a church where we can preach these truths. And, Father, as we go out today, as we witness, as we... Show the light that you've put in us, Father. Bring us men and women who are attracted to it such that we can then turn to them and we can see the fruit that you've promised to work through us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.